Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Our Bible reading is taken from 2 John verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 45, 53 to 54, Revelation 21, 23 to 27. At the end of this reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Please kindly respond by saying, thanks be to God. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the immortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the immortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no light there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Welcome to City Church. Thank you, Tosin, for that reading. And uh, I don't know if you are joining us for the first time. My name is Femi Oshinui. I'm lead pastor here. And you've joined us at the end of a mini-series, a very important mini-series that will be taken on the intersection between technology and theology. All right. So very happy. If it's your first time, you can always catch up with the other two that we've heard, uh, that we've uh, preached. But uh, this one, I think it's also going to be a very important one now. For us to get into this kind of thing, we do need help from God, for me to speak and for you to listen. So let's ask him for his help. Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and the giver of all wisdom and all knowledge, we need you now. We need you to speak to us. We need you to speak through me. But we also need you to hear. We need to hear what you are telling us. And we want what you tell us to not just move our minds, but to move our hearts to move our wills. We wanted to so transform us so that we can be the kind of worshippers that you are looking for. And so we ask Holy Spirit for your 
overwhelming presence right now. Move among us. Open the scriptures. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, we heard it again. I heard it just this last week. Um, there was a big name pastor in Nigeria who started talking about microchips again. But this time, he had a different spin on it. You see, what he told us was that if you look at what's going on in America, uh, protests, some little riots, but a lot of protests about Black Lives Matter, he said, it doesn't really have anything to do with racism. It doesn't really have anything to do with systemic uh, inequality. It has nothing to do with slavery. He'll tell us what it is about. Basically, the whole protest about Black Lives Matter is geared towards eradicating the presence of the police force, which is why he's saying that along with the protest about Black Lives Matter, now people are saying, truly, that they should defund the police. And he said that push towards defunding the police is eventually going to land in eradicating the police. And the reason why they want the police to be eradicated is because they, who is they? Ah. The they, they want to propose an alternative method of security. So that once the police have been taken away, the alternative method of security is going to come. And then you ask, what is this method or uh, this alternative method of security? What is it going to require? And then he tells us it's going to require the implanting of the RFID microchips. Now, you may say that, uh, at least that's America, thank God, it won't happen here. He says, no, it's not just America. It's going to happen in global cities of the world. They would all be looking to get rid of their police, and then the alternative method of security is going to come in. And that once they do that, and they, all these cities start to get the microchips, then it will enable the they to be able to monitor everything properly. And that is what is going to bring crime down. And this is how they're going to use the media to sell and hype it. And so that despite the failures of that system, because he says it will fail, the media is going to hype it as the best thing in the world. This, he tells us, is how we will receive the mark of the beast. So I hope you're getting it. Black Lives Matter is ultimately about receiving the mark of the beast. Okay, <laughs> I'm not making that up, but there are two things I should say about that. First of all, if you want to learn about the mark of the beast, we recently did a series on the book of Revelation, a three-part series on the book of Revelation. If you want to know particularly about the mark of the beast, it's in the final, the third part, but I would advise you to go through all of them, all right? It's an insightful series, and you'll find that in the description, uh, the description box or in the comment section of how you're viewing but the second thing I should say about this is what is really going on there with his interpretation and many other things that we find is it's less to do with theology than it has to do with sociology. It's less to do with theology than it has to do with sociology. What do I mean? There is a fear many times about technology. There is a fear of the threat of technology. Let me put it this way. Someone said, there are three ways, and he's putting it very crassly and very, he's summarizing, all right, in a very, very um, uh, non-nuanced way, okay? But he says there are three ways we view technology. One is technology that was there before you were born. 
we don't even really call it technology. We just, we just view it as normal. All right? Technology before you are born, normal. Technology from the time you are born to when you are 30, exciting. Innovation. About to change the world. Very sexy. Technology after you are 30, it's a threat. Because we're not sure what to do with it. It's a threat. And many times, as we think about this sociologically, when new forms of technology come in, we start to see them as threats. But I do think that this pushes us to ask a question for all the technological advance that we've seen, the technological progress that we've been seeing, where is it ultimately taking us to? You see, his description is that it is taking us to the final end of days, receiving the mark of the beast. Now, our view of where we think technology is going in the future is going to determine how we view technology today. And really, what we see in this text, and largely, um, as we see in our world, there are two main views. There are people who would say, according to the gospel, that Christ is in control of the future, and that determines a particular way of viewing technology in the present. Others would say it's not Christ, it may be something like technology that will be in control of the future. And that also, view, that also shapes how we view technology in the present. And so what we want to do today in our final um, uh, sermon, which we've titled Rewired for the Future, we want to be able to show how when you view that Christ is in control of the future, it not only affects how you think about technology in the present, but it gives us something wonderful to look forward to. Now, let's look at that in three different points. The first is a discerned technological future. The second is a worldly technological future. And the third is a godly technological future. A discerned technological future, a worldly technological future, and a godly technological future. All right, let's start with the first point. It discerned technological future. Now, I don't know how uh, you read the Bible. One of the things that's very clear as Christians, we see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 44 and 46, but we also see this in Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. Christians are meant to meet together. Churches are meant to be comprised of people meeting together. We see that in those scriptures from a historical example when the church was first born, but at the same time, we see it as an instruction. And the reason we are meant to meet together is to express our collective worship of God, but also to foster community. No arguments there, right? How do you do that then in a global pandemic, or in a world where there's a global pandemic? Well, in 1918 to 1920, the Spanish flu of that time, it just shut down churches. Here in Nigeria, people could not go to church, right? You kind of worship God at home. So what's the difference between 1920 and 2020? Because now it seems like we're having church, isn't it? To which we then say, technology, isn't it? Because church is able to come to you. You don't have to go to church. Church is able to come to you, really, because of the integration of, for some of the internet, smartphones, video cameras, mics, apps, computers. Really, technological advance has enabled us to be able to have church without leaving our homes. And many of us are celebrating it. We're saying, thank God for theology, uh, for technology. Technology is, in some ways, our great savior. And I can tell you some of the benefits for us as City Church, right? Since we've been able to do this, guess what? We've been able to see increase in attendance in our Sunday, uh, Sunday worship, in our GCs, 
and without city kids. Some other people will say, ah, thank God for this new way of doing church because I am no longer living in Lagos. Maybe I used to be part of city church or I've always heard about city church and I've struggled to find the kind um, a church like city church um, in the place I am now. So now because of this technological advance, I'm able to attend city church even though I'm not living in Lagos. Some other people will say, you know, I always found coming to church for 8.45, when do we, when do we even start? 8.30, maybe. 8.30 and 10.30 or 10.45, I'm not quite sure now, I've forgotten. All right, but I always found it very difficult because I am a late riser. Now, that person will say, even though I don't have to attend at 9 o'clock, I can switch on at 4 p.m. And since it's, the service has been recorded, I can now attend church at my own convenience. But then I know some other people, in fact, I know certain churches that refuse to use this medium to do church because they say that it robs us of the essence of church. And there are some of us that would say technology is killing the essence of church because there are certain disadvantages that, it, that comes with it. And I can tell you about some of the ones we are experiencing. So for the first, first thing, some people say it redefines what presence is. In other words, when we say, I have attended church, it's really redefining you because it now summarizes us as profiles rather than embodied beings. Attendance is more about logging in than actually coming somewhere. And with that, it provides to us <coughs> the illusion, or it presents to us the illusion of being able to multitask whilst you are worshipping. Right? Some of us in our GCs, and I've seen this before, you say, well, I am here. I attended GC. What does that really mean? When you say I attend GC, you logged on. In fact, your own, the only presence that we see of you is your name, text, because you can come physically, one, so you log on, but then you turn off your camera, so we can't see you. And the third thing is that we can't hear you because you meet yourself. And have you really attended? Because you are able to do other things, as long as people can't see, you can't hear what's going on. You're able to do other things, but there is the illusion that you have attended. Because of this, we don't have congregational singing. We can sing along with the people that have sung to us, but they can't, they can't hear us. Another problem is that we might be reaching more people, but we are discipling less. Because we cannot measure the impact on people, the things that we are trying to do. We can't really measure the impact as we used to when you could meet people face to face. We can't read body language. You don't know whether you disagree with something. And also at the same time, there is now less accountability. And the third thing is for those who find recorded services as, you know, an advantage, you know, you can also exercise your choice. I'm sure some of us do. When you get to certain parts of the service that you don't really like, maybe you don't like the confession, what do you do? You just fast forward. Maybe you don't like music. You just want to hear the message. Just fast forward. In other words, it gives us the illusion that worship is about our choices and our comfort. And so you ask yourself, are you really worshipping God or are you really worshipping the idols of choice and comfort? So for these people, technology is an enemy rather than a friend. And you see, we can apply this to other forms of technology. Take the mobile phone, our smart, our smart mobile phones, for instance. What is the advantage? Well, the advantage is people have the ability to reach you. Uh, sorry, you have the ability to reach anyone, anywhere, at any time. 
But the disadvantage is you can be reached by anyone, anywhere, at any time. On the one hand, one day you may be texting encouragement and scripture to people. On the other hand, you can be sexting lewd messages to other people. On the one hand, you can be captivated by listening to a sermon through it. But on the other hand, you can be enslaved by practicing online gambling through it as well. I hope you are seeing something. There are two underlying philosophies here, based on the things I've just said, that we have present in our world with which people use to view technology. The first one is what we call instrumentalism, colloquially just said as humans in control. The second is determinism, which is humans being controlled. Humans in control of technology, or humans being controlled by technology, instrumentalism and determinism. And determinism. Instrumentalism, humans in control, is really, it says basically, don't have a moral view on technology. Technology is neutral. It's really what you do with it. It's not whether or not it is wrong. It's what you do with it that is either right or wrong. Have you ever heard the saying, guns don't kill people, people kill people. The only problem with that is it's true. But if somebody has a gun in his house and somebody doesn't have a gun, people who have guns in the house and people who don't have guns in the house, you know the houses, the life in the house is much more different. If you are in a house with somebody who owns a gun, I can tell you first and foremost, very straight, straightly, is that you'll be very careful in how you restrain, in how you uh, demonstrate your anger towards that person. I can assure you that if you are with a person who has a gun in the house, you will restrain yourself. So much would be transformed in that house as a result of just having a gun, even when it is unused. So that while technology may be morally neutral, it is not absolutely neutral. And that's the problem with instrumentalism. What about determinism, which is humans being controlled? They say in this that technology virtually has a life of its own. And that life of its own, when it takes on that life of its own, it is able to effect changes in society that we are not able to get back. Some say for the negative, others for the positive. In negative, take for instance, the Industrial Revolution. Some people say the Industrial Revolution is what led to the breakdown of families. Because of the Industrial Revolution, people did not start take, they did not take the jobs that their parents used to have and so the way families were united around a particular vocation and business, now all of a sudden the, husband, the daughter and the son started to move to the city and pursue their own dreams. And so families were no longer together. The industrial revolution caused the breakdown of families. Technology takes its life on its own and it works for ill in our societies. Others say, no, it works for positive. That is, for instance, you will never, the, the, the Protestant Reformation really happened because of the invention of the printing press. Because now, all of a sudden, the Bible could be printed cheaply and could be distributed to peasants and, and people of high rank and people could read the Bible for themselves. Or, for instance, some people say social media and the internet was what brought about the Arab Spring and the bringing down of despotic leaders all around North Africa. So it's technology that is really in control of the world. But you see, Christians will say, 
we have a problem with that because we believe that it is God that is in control of the world, God who is sovereign, not technology. But I hope you are getting what's going on. Both of them do have elements of truth here. That is, instrumentalists are right. We are the ones that do exercise our will to use the technology. For instance, you are the one who actually decides to log on and come to church online. But the problem is many times, even though we do agree that we are the ones exercising our will to use the technology, far too often we are too naive about how that technology eventually starts to transform and control us. On the other hand, determinists have a point. We are not often aware of how much the technology is controlling us. But sometimes they too, but they too also miss the point that God is ultimately in control of everything. So how should we then think about technology? Well, Christianity offers us another more nuanced and I would say more comprehensive view. Let's call it Christian discernment. So what is Christian discernment? Well, let me tell you about three ancient great Greek philosophers. You've probably heard of them. Think of Aristotle, for instance. Aristotle was a great guy, did so much for the world in terms of his thinking, he's still affecting us today. But Aristotle had a teacher and a mentor. He was called Plato, right? Plato has helped us think about human society in general. His famous uh, book, The, uh, the Republic, you know, made us think about the value of wisdom in, in, in certain of societies and all of those things. But before Plato was his own mentor called Socrates. Socrates. Socrates was very big on wisdom. Very big on wisdom. He was so big on wisdom that he actually was very concerned about a technology that was just very new in his day. It was the technology of writing. Writing down things. Socrates felt that if we wrote down thoughts that we will get into the danger of acquiring knowledge but not getting wisdom. Because he said, yes, people can personally get knowledge by reading someone else's thoughts. However, if we want to acquire wisdom, that only comes through learning in dialogue. I do think he has a point. So many people have read so, many, so much, but when you listen to them espouse their views about humanity, about how we solve certain problems, you can just see there's something of wisdom. The knowledge is there, but it doesn't, it's not comprehensive because they've not tested these ideas. They've not walked, uh, talked to others. They've not uh, see, seen how the thing can work out. But Socrates, because of that, actually never wrote down any of his ideas. Never wrote down one. The only reason why we know some of Socrates' thoughts is because Plato wrote it down for us. Socrates was so much against writing down the philosopher. Now, having discussed the philosopher, I want to tell you about the prophet. The philosopher and the prophet. Let me tell you about the prophet. Now, this prophet, I've cheated a little bit. The prophet is also an apostle, um, but he received prophecy in the book of Revelation. I'll tell you about the apostle or prophet John. John was, he wanted to communicate with some people in, in a church, and he said some of, the, he said something that is very, very crucial in 2 John chapter 12, which was read to us by Tosin. You didn't think I was going to get to the scriptures. Well, I am now. 2 John 12, he says this, I have much to write to you, 
but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk to you or talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. Notice, John, like Socrates, says face to face is better than ink. Face to face is better than ink. So how did he let them know that face to face was better than ink? By writing on ink. In fact, the book is called To John because John wrote the letter. He wrote the letter. In other words, what was going on there? You see, John knew face-to-face -face was better than ink, but he needed to communicate with these people over a particular distance. And he, he couldn't leave where he was at that time. So he had to make use of the technology available to him while at the same time acknowledging the limitations of that technology. He used the te technology, but he also knew that true fellowship and the joy of true fellowship could only be experienced in face-to-face -face embodied meetings. And here, John is already showing us the principle of Christian discernment, knowing the limitations of technology, but also acknowledging its benefits. And so that when you want to respond with technology, you show discernment. It's sort of like the traffic light. Right? The traffic light has three lights, as you can see on the screen, red, amber, and green. What is red? We all know it. Stop. It's static. What is green? Go. The command is static, and it creates, well, not static. It, it tells us to be in motion, but it is static in that command. But what is amber? Amber is a command that is more dynamic. It depends on where you are finding the amber. If the amber is about to go to green, if it's transitioning to green, then that amber is indicating get ready to move. If the amber is transitioning to red, then it's telling you get ready to stop. It's neither fully go, nor is it fully stop. In other words, when we think about technology, Christian discernment te uh, teaches us to recognize technology's tendencies to be helpful without uncritical embrace, but also teaches us to recognize technology's tendency to be unhelpful without totally dismissing it. Recognize its tendency to be helpful without uncritical embrace. Don't just say this is going to transform everything, it's just neutral, just take it. No. How is it transforming us? What changes is it bringing about? You should recognize the benefits without uncritical embrace. But at the same time, this is going to destroy the world. This is going to destroy church as we've ever known it. We can never, we should never bring it in. Let's just have the old time religion. No. We can recognize its tendency to be unhelpful without totally dismissing it. Christian discernment is a more nuanced approach, an amber approach, ready to stop and ready to go. And that's the same way we must think about digital church. It's what we have now, and we must make the best of it. But let us also be aware of its unhelpfulness. Some of the things that I have said are actually true. You must recognize your wanting to have choice and wanting to um, uh, 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 idolize comfort and say, no, I need to be disciplined. It is time for me to rise. Almost all my church members are going to be around at this time. 
I must join. And know when I'm going into my GC, I need to be present as though I would have been there physically. Try to turn away many other things. Don't fall for the illusion of multitasking. Recognize its unhelpfulness. While we celebrate that, can you imagine, whilst we don't want to, whilst there's a global pandemic, we as church people who want to love our neighbors are saying we don't want to spread the risk of the virus. And yet that doesn't stop us from hearing God's word, from singing, from reading, from confessing. We celebrate the helpfulness of technology. So be fully here and present as much as you can. And let us long for the time when we can meet face to face so that our joy may be complete. Now, this takes me to my second point. A worldly, a worldly what? A worldly technological future. Now, notice that Discernment comes from a proper understanding of who is in control. Now, why am I saying that? Because I want us to explore um, in the next two points what the future of technology can be with, with, without God being in control and with God being in control. Because if God is not in control, if technology is sovereign, this leads to what some have called technicism. Technicism is... Um, a future based on technology being sovereign. Technology, at the end of the day, being sovereign over the future and being the one that constructs the future. That is, it will create what we call a dystopia or a utopia. All right, a utopia is an imagined, um, an imagined place or state or um, an imagined perfect place and perfect state of affairs. Whereas dystopia is the inverse, an imagined imperfect perfect place, right? The perfection of imperfection would be dystopia. Now, I'm only going to talk about a utopia, all right? So what do I mean if technicism was to give us a utopia? Well, first of all, before you can describe a utopia, you have to describe, you have to point out two different things. Think about your dream Nigeria. If I asked us to dream of Nigeria, many of us would say at least one aspect of it would be that you want to have, is a, is a country that is powered 24 hours seven days a week, 365 days a year. And so you think about 24-hour power that comes as a result of an efficient generation, transmission, and distribution grid. And when you think about that, notice what you've just done. You've described the utopia, but you've also mentioned the means through which that description can be achieved and sustained. You described it, but you also talked about the means through which that description could be achieved and sustained. So you always need the description and the means. So if I talk about a technological utopia, a technological paradise, you have to think about it both in the description and the means. Now this sentence can help us describe what a technological utopia would look like. It would be special people in a special place with a special presence. Special people in a special place, with a special presence. What do I mean? Let's talk about the special people. Now, some of us learned this in school. Biological evolutionists believe that mankind came as a result of us being evolving from certain creatures to one state, to another state, to another state. So the very first one, I can't really pronounce it. Let's just say almost close to apes. But then we move to Homo habilis. 
And from Homo habilis, we move to Homo erectus. From Homo erectus, we move to Homo neanderthalensis. From Homo neanderthalensis, we move to Homo sapiens. That's where we are now in our stage of evolution. Homo sapiens. And Homo sapiens has larger brains than all its predecessors. And because of the larger brains that we have, we've been able to think better and be able to achieve much. So much. I mean, just look at what Homo sapiens have achieved. Look at the buildings around you. Look at the internet. Look at our cameras. Look at our clothes. We've achieved a lot. But people who believe in technicism will tell you that there is still one more, one more place for us to go to, as you can see on the screen, Homo technicus. That is the new frontier, Homo technicus. That is, it will be a combination of man and machine, and it will bring about the dream body that you are looking for. Back about 10 years ago, the, one of the biggest things was nanotechnology. And some people have described how nanotechnology can help us achieve this homo technicus being, body that we are looking for. Imagine having ears that can hear across wider range of frequencies than we are hearing now. You can hear all the spirits that are around. You can hear all the dangers that are coming from afar. Or imagine, for those of us who look after our skin so much and put all manner of creams and all manner of pancakes and all manner of whatever, or some of us that want to do plastic surgery because of the aging, or we inject Botox so that we don't look like we're aging. Forget all of that. We've got you covered. Because you can now have flawless skin that combines cells and synthetic polymers. Never to age again. Or what about your bones? Imagine having unbreakable bones that have been strengthened with carbon nanotubes. You can jump from a three or four story building and nothing will happen to you like Spider-Man. But this is my own favorite, is that we will have something called nano-nurses. What are nano-nurses? Nano-nurses are tiny, small, robotic devices moving about our body. And they will be detecting damages in our body because chemical signals will be telling, will be telling them that there are damages here and there. So they go towards where the damages are and they start to dispense drugs or they start to dispense cells that help uh, repair damaged tissue. Wouldn't you like that kind of body? Through that kind of thing, disease and death will be eradicated. Now you say, okay, those are the people, that's me, but my environment is not great. That leads us to the second thing, special place. From Rome to Constantinople, from Constantinople to London, from London to Guangzhou, from Guangzhou to Silicon Valley, from Silicon Valley to Yabakon Valley. What have we always found? That technology is always, um, and that cities have always been this, at the center of technological development that help human progress. They help us solve our biggest problems. And even though we have been advancing and advancing in our cities. Our cities are getting better, they are smarter, they are producing better and better technology. We've not arrived. You see, the more we are progressing in our cities, it's showing us that we are trying to get to that technological utopian city. You know where we're going? We're going to Wakanda. Yes. That is the technological... You remember Wakanda? Remember how everything was working well? What is Wakanda? Really, it is a high-tech utopia, fully automated, 
to handle all our needs. Forget microchips. There's artificial technology, artificial intelligence. We're able to, there's face recognition. We're able to order things just by thinking about them. And then when we order it, it's not that you have to go and pick it somewhere. Drones will come and deliver what you have ordered. If you want to go somewhere, we will not be going on the road. Who is using road? When we have the air, we'll have flying cars and flying taxis that again, we'll order, we won't use apps. The apps are going to be somehow inserted in us just by thinking. And everything will work at such an efficient, in such an efficient way that there will be zero, I don't mean small, zero pollution. Everywhere will be monitored, as our pastor friend told us earlier on. Just not really the mark of the beast, but let's leave that aside. And so there will be zero crime, zero recessions, boom and bust, economic boom and bust will have been eradicated. There will be zero injustice, zero corruption, zero poverty. Wakanda. Special place. Now, but how, if that describes the people on the place, remember, we also have to describe the means that sustain this. That is the special presence. All of this will be made possible because of the presence of a super intelligent mind. This super intelligent mind will represent the zenith of and the concentration, the accumulation of all our artificial intelligence. And it is this super intelligent mind that will enable this place and the people to exist, but also to be sustained. In fact, there is a religion that already exists that is dedicated towards the worship of this super intelligent mind. It's called Way of the Future. The person that's behind it is one of the pioneers of Uber and I think Google Cars or something like that. Way of the future. What they're basically saying is that we need to have this super intelligence at the center of it all. And the presence of this super intelligent mind will enable the existence and the sustenance of all things in this technological utopia. Isn't this wonderful? That's our technological paradise. Now, I should say this, we have problems with it. And let me just mention one or two, but the big thing here is that technicism defines humanity strictly in material and physical terms. Your thinking, your mind is really just your brain. Your emotions are just jumping cells and molecules. And therefore, all your problems are physical limitations. There is no morality, it's just materialism. And so our biggest problem in humanity is what? Lack of innovation. Once we are able to solve um, our, ability to, our inability to innovate properly, we will solve all our problems. This will bring the end of our evolution. That is what it presents to us. But you know that you are more than your physical being. You know that your emotions truly do exist. You know that your psyche truly does exist. You know that you're also a relational being. You know you're a moral being. You know that you're a spiritual being. And it's because of this, our greatest problem, though it man our problems manifest in the physical, our greatest problem is spiritual. Our greatest problem is moral. When someone shoots a person in the street, we don't just say, well, my chemicals, the chemicals in my brain is making me feel bad about that. It's not absolutely wrong. It's just the way I feel. Because we are, we are, though we are physical, we are more than physical. And what we've seen in the narrative of Scripture is this, that the root of our problems is really because we rebelled against God. 
And if God, if our relationship, broken relationship with God is at the root of our problem, then that means to solve our problem at the root also has to lie with God. The God we've turned against is also the God who ultimately is our Savior. Our biggest problem is with God and therefore it will take God to solve it. How is he going to do that? It has to do with God's final day technology. And that brings me to my third point, a godly future technology. No, a godly technological future. All right, so let's go to the third point. You ever heard the saying, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. It's true. And people sell you uh, schemes that say, all you need to do is that if you take this product and you get six people, and then those six people get six people, you move up to another level, move up to, and you can become a millionaire in two, three months, it's probably too good to be true. If people say, just sign up for this, my free coaching session, and see how you can make $4,000 every, every week without leaving the comfort of your home, it's probably too good to be true. But do you know that there are some times that certain things we get, we've imagined how good they are, and when we get them, they actually exceed our expectation and imagination. Well, that is what you get with God's special persons, God's special place, and God's special presence. You see, because the technological, uh, the technici uh, technicism uh, adherents are right about describing it in that way. It requires special persons, it requires a special place, and it requires special presence. The problem they have is their answer to each of those three. But God has an answer for each of them. Let's quickly run through that. Special persons. They are right again. The technicism adherents are right. Hum the suffering of humanity is crying out for things to be better. The illness that you are suffering now is crying out for things to be better. The person that you lost last week is crying out for things to be better. The presence of COVID-19 is crying out for things to be better. And not just in our physical body, but even the way we relate with one another. Our stupid decisions, our immoral decisions, the immoral decisions that, that affect us personally, that have affected our families, that have affected our nations. We are not where we ought to be. And so all of these deficiencies is crying out, is groaning for something to be better, for us to be better in, our, in and of ourselves. Paul, in Romans 8, 22 to 23, says that we are groaning. What are we groaning for? We are groaning for the redemption of our bodies. We do need new bodies. But where they are wrong is that by telling us that it's homotechnicals, they are saying that we only get there, even though they're not, they don't tell you explicitly, but we only get there by improvements. Because even with your nano-nurses, what is the nano-nurse telling you? The nano-nurse is telling you that still inherent inside you, you can still fall ill. And so it has to solve the problem. You see, they are right in one thing, that we have not reached the end of our evolution. But they are wrong that the future of humanity is homotechnicals. No, what God says is that the future of humanity is homo Christus. There is another man. There is a new man for us to be able to reach. There is a final man for us to attain, for us to attain, whose image we are to attain to. And technology 
made by human beings can never get us there because we were the ones that brought about the problem. We can't think that we'll fix it. We've moved away from God who created us and the only way we can get it is to move back to God who created us to solve the problem. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45 and 49, it tells us this. So it is written, the first man, the first humanity became a living being. However, the last Adam, the last man, a life-giving spirit, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, just as we are now bearing the image of the earthly man, but the earthly man is decaying. No matter the progress that we've made, we've only slowed down the, the decay. We've only slowed down our march towards death. He says there is another man. We do need another evolution. And if we have borne the image of the first man, we will bear the image of the other man, which is the heavenly man. Not Homo Technicus, but Homo Cry, Homo Christus. While the Homo Technicus is about improvement, Homo Christus is about evolution. We are not looking for a new transfer, a new a technological body. We are looking for a spiritual body. That's what he says in verse 44. It is shown a natural body, but it is raised up a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. If you are looking to technology to bring about your body, then you are still looking to the earth to solve your problem. But when he says that it's a spiritual body, that means it is a body that God himself by the Holy Spirit forms and fashions for us. That is what we need. God's final day technology doesn't have to do with something that you and I cook up because our problem is that we don't need a technological transformation. What we need is a bodily resurrection. So it is, he says in verse 42, it will be with what? The resurrection of the dead. God's answer to the problem of our humanity is to solve it through a resurrection. And this resurrection tells us that there will be no sin because that is the root of the problem. In this body, there will be no sin. There will be no sickness, verse 42. That's the, imper uh, the perishability. No dishonor, verse 43. No weakness, verse 43. And finally, no death. For sin, we get sinlessness. For sickness, we get health. For dishonor, we get glory. For weakness, we get strength and power. And for, mortal for death, we get immortality, as we say in verse 54. Listen, those who cause the problem cannot be the one to solve it. If we do need a new body, it is a body that God alone himself can give to us. And he gives that to us guaranteed in the resurrection. But then there's a special place. And some people say that cities get a bad rap in the Bible. Just think about it, right? King's city, then you get to Babel, then you get to Nineveh, then you get to Babylon, then you get to Athens, then you get to Ephesus. All the while when you read about these cities in the Bible, it doesn't, the Bible doesn't really talk glowingly about them. And so this has led a lot of Christians to believe that God is against cities. But that is not the case. Because if you look at the very first uh, part where um, 
in Genesis chapter 1, where there's an indication of this, you will see that God has a positive view as well of cities. In Genesis 1.28, remember that cultural mandate? God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, have more people, and increase in number, and fill the earth and subdue it, make more of the world. Where can you see this most achieved? It is in cities where you have more people in a uh, in a smaller area, so there's more population density, but at the same time, because of that density, they are making things. In other words, God is saying that our final abode is actually a, an urban one, which is why this mandate ultimately leads us somewhere. Remember, most of us think it's Wakanda, right? Technicists are telling us it's Wakanda. It is what we can do here. But actually, nowadays, uh, if you find out with skyscrapers, most of the best skyscrapers that are being made today that are technologically savvy or the houses that are technologically savvy, one of the things you find out is that the technology to make them is not there. It's not housed on site. Most of their panels, most of the buildings, most of everything is being as, uh, developed with cutting the technology outside the site. And then it is brought to the site and then assembled. You see, the problem with Wakanda is that Wakanda is going to be built up from here. But where God promises us is our final abode. It is a city, but it's not a city that we create. The people who have been recreated with resurrection bodies by the Holy Spirit are going to dwell in an abode that is coming down from God from heaven. In Revelation 21 verse 2, he says, And I saw a holy city coming down from heaven to God. That is what we see in Revelation 21 verse 23 when he says, the city does not need sun or moon to shine on it. That city is coming down from God, from heaven. Remember that the image of the last Adam is the image of the heavenly man. And the heavenly man is going to dwell in a heavenly city. But it's not that he's going to heaven. It is that the heavenly city which was assembled there is going to be brought down to earth. And this heavenly city is the place of our delight. Notice in verse 24 and 26, it says that kings will bring their splendor and the nations will bring their glory and honor. What are those things? That is the things that they are able to produce with their technology. But in a place where there is no curse, in a place where there is no evil. That's why in verse 27, it says nothing impure will enter in that city. In verse 25, it says the gate of that city will never be shut because there will be no crime there. Imagine working without any limitations. Whatever we have described in Wakanda is only the start. All of those things that we have described in, in the second point, all these different artificial intelligence, I don't know what is going to be there. But here's what I know. I know that when God has created the city, we are all there with resurrection bodies without any sin. We are able to then produce things in the best possible environment with the best possible minds. Just dream about what that would look like technologically. Heavenly Jerusalem is always going to be better than Wakanda because the originator and the maker is not human beings, but it's God. We are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Now that brings me to the final thing, special presence. If you have all of these things without God, what do you have? Don't forget that the mess that we created and we turned to technology to fix was all rooted in the fact that we turned against God. 
we moved away from God's presence. Adam and Eve were banned from Eden. Cain ran away into his city from God. Israel were eventually exiled from the promised land. We are always moving away from God. What we ultimately need to make our lives work is the presence of God. And therefore, if you try to describe a bright future without God, you are lacking the essence of what makes that future bright. If you describe a utopia without God, it will lack the light that enables that utopia to shine. And therefore, you will have described hell. Because having all things in creation become perfect and all the people perfect without the presence of God is just a, a, a is just the best description, the most beautiful description you can give of hell, but it's still hell. Notice it says that it is God and the Lamb that gave that city. It's light. It is God that gives that city its life. It is God that enables that city to be what it is. It is like having a car without an engine and without the fuel that makes it work. If you have this city without God, it will be a ghost town because the source of life, the giver of all life, will not be there. No. Rather than having an impersonal super intelligent mind that is still ultimately made by human beings. How about having the presence of a personal, all-knowing creator God and a redeeming lamb who died for you, who is all love? How about being in his presence? The one who is able to give you the satisfaction that you've always craved for. How about being in his presence? And you see, this is the future that we have. Special persons resurrected estate. In a special place, the new Jerusalem. With the special presence of God. Question is this. As we all long for that future, should we all look forward to it? Because notice at the end of verse 27, it tells us that the only ones that should look forward to it are those who are willing to write their name. Where? In the Lamb's Book of Life. It is only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life that will enter into that city. Is your name in the Lamb's Book of Life? Because if it isn't, Christ, the first resurrected man, is inviting you to write your name. Do you want to enjoy this resurrected existence? Write your name. Do you want to flourish in this glorious, technologically advanced city forever? Write your name. Do you want to live in God's magnificent, life-giving, pleasure-satisfying presence for all of eternity? Then write your name. And then you ask me, how can I write my name? You don't notice the name. The name is in it's the Lamb's Book of Life. It isn't that isn't that ironic that it is a book that is promising you life on account of the death of a sacrificial lamb. To which you say, why was the lamb sacrificed? It was sacrificed for all the ways you have tried to seek a utopia outside of God. You're doing it now, and the way you are doing it now 
depicts how you want your utopia to be in the future. But if you only confess, if you acknowledge that this is the life you lived and that Jesus eventually was sacrificed for your offenses, if you acknowledge, if you confess it and then you believe in him, he will give you life. But you tell me, but I thought he was dead. Yes, but the lamb is going to be present in the city, which means that the lamb is no longer dead. He has risen to life. And because that lamb lives, because the final man lives, you also can live. Are you ready to write your name? Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.